All right, I have the pleasure this morning of introducing Madeline Bolding. She is a new member in our church. She's been here since uh, January, February. Something like that. And uh, I should probably step away so we don't <laughs> ring. Uh, she's going to talk to us today about uh, one of those things that uh, affects society in uh, somewhat pervasive ways and uh, work that's being done to improve. Yep. Thanks. Um, good morning. Uh, I haven't actually had the, the pleasure to attend a forum so far, so um, I'm excited to be here, but, you know, it's kind of strange as my first time being a speaker. Um, I'm going to talk about spinal muscular atrophy, which has, was the um, topic of my research in graduate school. Um, so if you'd like to change the slide, please. <laughs> slide. <laughs> yeah. I have an obnoxious number of slide clicks that I didn't realize uh, would be a problem. <clears throat> but yeah, so um, this is kind of a different talk for me to give. Normally a 40-minute talk would be super technical or a lay talk would be like five minutes or something. That's typically what I've been used to. but. Um, so today I'm, I'm kind of meshing three different talks together. I'm going to talk about the disease itself because it's really interesting um, and good to know about. And then I'll go a little bit into my research um, just because it's, it's kind of fun. And then I'm now no longer doing research. And so kind of the ways that I've um, taken this experience and incorporated it into my life um, post-research. Next slide, please. So spinal muscular atrophy is, um, if you would, if you would uh, click again, please, slide. <laughs> um, it's originally described in the 1800s as Wernicke-Hoffman disease. Two doctors, they saw some kids who had um, extreme weakness in these proximal muscles, so not so much like the muscles down here. They can still move their hands, but they can't really move their arms. Their upper legs are severely affected. Um, and they could tell from just the disease pathology and then autopsies that this was a result of motor neurons dying. So the motor neurons are coming from the lower horn of the spinal cord and they come and attach to the muscle and tell the muscle when to fire. And so when you um, lose your motor neurons, your muscles then aren't getting told to fire and they atrophy. They just kind of slowly die because they're not being used. Um, next, please. Um, in 1954, there was another doctor, uh, a set of doctors that described a different disease that had um, similar weakness in those same areas, but it was in much, much older children. And so they considered it a different disease. Next slide, please. And so these were both considered neurodegenerative diseases, meaning that um, it's degenerating because of the motor neurons. And there's no cognitive defects. So these people are bright and active. Um, it's just that their body becomes extremely weak. Next slide. Uh, so now we know that those two different diseases that they were describing are actually a spectrum of the same disease, and it's called spinal muscular atrophy. So um, over here I have the most severe cases. Those are actually embryonic lethal. Um, that's so severe that they're never even born. The most... Um, the majority of patients are this type 1, and that's a very severe type that um, 
It's most of patients, and they die by age two. Um, you have type two patients, um, and they, um, under natural history, will live into the second decade of life. And then type three patients, they can, um, they are able to walk at some point, but then you, they experience frequent falls um, and eventually need a wheelchair. There's even a, a late onset, which is really uncommon, um, and that's onset after the age of 30. And that doesn't really affect lifespan at all, but it just makes it you know, more difficult to move around. Um, so if you'd like to do an activity with me, um, I mentioned that the upper arms and upper legs are, are really weak, but what, what wasn't shown on that slide is the intercostal muscles. And those are the, in, the muscles that are in between your ribs that help your ribs expand up and out. So if you would put your hands right here on your ribs and take some deep breaths and feel your ribs move, and then think about your band teacher or your choir teacher and how they told you to breathe with your diaphragm and make sure that you're really expanding your belly when you breathe. So now try to breathe without making your ribs expand at all. You kind of end up having to just use your diaphragm. You get really shallow breaths, they're really quick, and um, it's almost exclusively your diaphragm. So if you can see this picture of this baby right here, he's got what we call a bell-shaped chest, where his chest is really sunken in and his belly is expanded because his um, diaphragm is doing most of the work. Um, and so like in type 2 patients, um, because basically they live long enough to see these effects, they have this extreme scoliosis. And so they already have a limited breathing capacity because their intercostals are weak, and now they have scoliosis, which is restricting that already, um, that already um, lessened lung capacity. And so um, these kids are getting weak, and even if we can keep them on BiPAP assistance to keep them breathing, there's also other consequences, like they can't cough. And if you can't cough, you, you know, normally we have, and they can't swallow very well, normally we have just this mucus that's going down and we swallow it, we clear our throats, but they can't do that. And so um, patients will have to have constant monitoring and they'll, you'll have a vacuum to suck out the mucus from their mouth every, I don't know, 10 minutes, um, or else they could either drown or um, inhale mucus. Um, and or get a respiratory infection. And so that's actually tends to be what patients die from is could be, you know, they caught a cold and they couldn't handle that. Uh, next slide, please. Um, and so what we know about this spectrum is that it's not random that these patients have different severity of symptoms. It's directly correlated to the number of copies of a gene called SMN2. So if you have more copies, like more dosage, of SMN2, you have more mild symptoms. If you have very few copies of SMN2, your symptoms are really severe. Next slide, please. Oh, we already did that activity, so um, keep going. Oh, and this is um, a picture um, called hypotonia, hypotonia or floppy baby syndrome. Um, if you would go back one, so if you can see this image, normally if you, if you pick a baby up by their hands, their head comes with it. Um, but these babies have no control over their head motion. Um, and if you, if you hold them like that by the belly, they normally would kind of make a swimming motion. 
Um, but these babies can't do any of that. Their muscles are so weak, it's called floppy baby syndrome. All right, next slide, please. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> uh, so the incidence of SMA is one in 6,000 live births. Um, and that number ranges from six to 10,000. Next. The carrier frequency is one in 40. And what that means is that, um, because this is an autosomal recessive disorder, um, as long as you have um, one good copy of what we'll talk about in a minute, um, and one bad copy, as long as you have one, you're fine. Um, and you would never display symptoms. But um, one in 40 of us has one good copy and one bad copy. And um, so if that one in 40 meets up with another one in 40 and they have kids, then their kids could accidentally in inherit the bad copy from each parent and then they are susceptible to disease. Um, and so yeah, one in 40 is kind of an alarming number. Um, and next please. And this is the, the leading genetic cause of infantile death because those um, type one patients almost always die by age two. Next, um, it's autosomal recessive uh, in nature. And so that means that, you know, even though there's no family history um, anywhere that I might be um, able to pass this on to my kids, it could still happen. And next, please. Um, and it's also pretty much equivalent among all races and genders and um, geographies. So it's not anything that affects one population, um, well, in general. There are populations um, that are more uh, susceptible, but they're mostly like geographically isolated um, populations that don't have as much genetic diversity as the general population. Next. So um, here's what's going on at the genetic level. So um, in our genome, early on, in, so there's a gene called SMN1. It's called SMN1 because we named it that way because it stands for survival of motor neuron. As soon as we found out that this gene was responsible for SMA, you know, they said, well, whatever this gene does, it's causing SMN, or it's causing motor neurons to die, so it must be required for the survival of motor neurons. Um, and this gene, um, does what genes do. It's got DNA, so the DNA is represented at the top. That gets uh, transcribed into RNA, and that's what's shown in this blot, um, a full-length RNA, and then the RNA gets turned into protein. Everything is great. Uh, next. But what happened early on in human evolution is that this SMN1 gene was duplicated and inverted and made a very, very similar gene called SMN2. And um, there's really only a handful of differences between SMN1 and SMN2, but there's one difference that makes, at the RNA level, instead of making full-length SMN, um, it makes full-length SMN about 10% of the time. As you can see, there's like the big blot for the full-length SMN from SMN1, and then there's that small blob up top um, for SMN2. So 10% of the time, it's making full-length RNA, RNA, which then gets made into full-length protein, and that's great. But 90% of the time, um, it causes a misplicing event, and um, so exon 7 gets skipped, and so we call this truncated RNA delta 7 because it's missing exon 7. Um, and 
Delta 7 is fine. It doesn't hurt anything. It's just not stable and it can't stick around enough to properly do its function. And so um, what happens in SMA is that you now have a patient, so like all of us in this room have at least one copy of SMN1, so we're making at least 100% protein, so we're fine. Um, in SMA, you lose um, your copies of SMN1, and you're only relying on SMN2. So if you have one copy of SMN2, you're making 10% of the protein that you need. If you have two copies, you're making 20%. If you have three copies, you're making 30%. And so you can see why the copy number of SMN2 is responsible for having less severe symptoms. Um, okay, next slide. Um, yeah, so we know that more copies of SMN2 makes more protein, which makes your symptoms milder. Next, please. Um, and so, because we know that low SMN levels, protein levels, are the cause of SMA, we know that the treatment would be to restore SMN levels. Even if we don't know what SMN is doing, we kind of don't care because we know what this, you know, we know it's missing. We know if we give it back, whatever it does, it should be doing again. Next slide. And so gene therapy is um, one of the ways that's really promising to treat SMA. Next. Um, so the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapies defines gene therapy as an approach to treating disease by either modifying the expression of genes or correcting abnormal genes. Uh, next, the um, definition that they, used, that they used to have that I prefer is that you're either using nucleic acid, so DNA or RNA, or something that looks like DNA or RNA, to um, either as the drug or you're targeting nucleic acid um, as your therapeutic. Next, please. And so one strategy um, to treat SMA would be to enhance SMN2. We already know that all the patients have SMN2, and they already have it in multiple copies. And so the idea would be that if it's already making this truncated, that shortened SMN delta 7 protein, maybe we could trick it into making more of the full-length protein. Um, and so there's a therapy called ASOs, antisense oligonucleotides, and um, that's exactly what they do. So these are just um, small pieces of um, nucleic acid. They look like RNA, but they're much more stable. And because SMN2 is kind of broken at the RNA level, they can bind to RNA and um, mitigate the binding of certain proteins um, to help that splicing go correctly more percent of the time. So if you're splicing at 10% of the time, you're making full-length protein, maybe we could get it up to 20% of the time. And we know that that would have a significant effect. Next slide. And so this has been, this is happening. Um, when I started grad school, this was kind of experimental and they were starting um, clinical trials. But um, through companies Ionis and Biogen, actually, um, next please. Um, this is called Spinraza, and it's the first approved therapeutic for SMA. And it just got approved, next please, in um, November of last year, and it causes a 49% reduction in the risk of um, death or permanent ventilation help. Uh, next please. And again, next, next. Um, and so this 
So 49% reduction in risk of dying is excellent. But one of the things we talk a lot about in the field a lot is the difference between extending life and extending the quality of life. And so if you have a child who is on permanent ventilation care and just can't hardly do anything and you make them live for another six months, is that really, um, is that really as beneficial as maybe not extending the life, but extending how long they can smile at you, how long they can you know, just do, feed themselves, um, do those basic things. And so um, Spinraza doesn't seem to help every patient, but especially when you treat patients very, very young, before their motor neurons have started dying, um, there's definitely effect. And we even have, so this is um, kind of a typical SMA patient, wheelchair bound with permanent BiPAP assistance. Um, and this is also a type one SMA patient who has been receiving Spinraza um, for probably about two years and um, is now standing. And so standing is not something you would ever expect a type one patient to do. Again, they usually can't even control their heads, much less turn their bodies around, much less sit up unassisted. And so um, it's a terribly exciting um, development. Um, it does require injection every four months into the spinal cord. And so that's you know, quite a burden and it costs $125,000 per injection. Um, next slide, please. So strategy two, using gene therapy to treat SMA would be instead of um, enhancing SMN2, just give them back SMN1. And then you know that SMN1 should do everything that it would need to do. And so um, we know that just one copy of SMN1 is enough to provide um, protein for the cell. And so the idea is that you make a virus that infects, instead of with its own DNA, it's infecting you with the therapeutic DNA. Um, and this is, I say easy in the lab. It's easy compared to a lot of things, but it still takes several weeks to do this in the lab. Um, and so throughout my graduate career, I, I probably did 40 different viruses. Um, so it definitely can be done, but it's hard to scale up on, you know, we were treating mice. To, do, to um, increase the dose for a human um, takes a lot of industrial scale up. Um, and I mentioned HeLa because if you guys um, watched the upcoming movie about Henrietta Lacks, and she's the woman who had the tumor that became the first um, human culture cell line. Um, and actually in Radiolab, they recently re-aired their HeLa episode, and they talked about how important cell lines were for making vaccines, like the polio virus vaccine. So this is one way, like this is kind of similar. You have these cells in a dish, and you, so in their case, they could have given them the full virus. In our case, we just give them the DNA. And once all the DNA is in the cell, the virus does what it's gonna do, which is to proliferate. Um, and so uh, in the Radiolab episode, you know, they're talking about using that to make a bunch of polio virus so that they could make the polio vaccine. But in our case, we're using it to make a therapeutic virus. And so, um, yeah. There's just a couple pieces of DNA. So SMN is our therapeutic gene, and that's what's going to be like the DNA that's encapsulated in this protein. And then it also needs to have the information for the protein to form kind of the shell that the virus is gonna travel in. Next, please. And so how is this working? So in mice, 
it works really, really well. We have um, our SMA model lives about 14 days. Um, and the first time they tried this with mice, they lived 250 days. And they were shocked and they had to regenotype because they thought, no, these are not sick mice. You know, we just accidentally mixed up the mice. And, but no, they had to regenotype. And, and sure enough, um, so now they are going on to, into clinical trials. I think they started that in 2014, in April 2014. Um, and they dosed the first patient with 600 trillion viruses um, as her therapy, and that was the low dose, actually. Um, and so this, <clears throat> so when you're dealing with a disease that's as severe as SMA, and these patients have not that many capabilities, you have to come up with scales of measuring um, strength that are really precise. And so this is called the chop and tin score. That doesn't really matter, but um, so it's a really, you know, kind of every little thing gets you one more point or one less point on this scale. And these patients, there's several of these patients that have maxed out the scale. And so they need to be using kind of a more general strength scale um, to even measure the success of this drug. Um, and so, again, this is a patient that you would not expect to be, honestly, you wouldn't really expect her to be alive at this point. Um, she's 18 months old, so um, maybe. I think 18 months, the survival rate's like maybe 75 or 75% of patients are dead by 18 months. Um, and then by two years, it's 95 and so, but here she is up and standing. Um, and again, it's just really terribly exciting. Um, I think that's all I need to say about that slide next. Oh, yeah. And again, so um, you wouldn't, ex this is what you would expect from an SMA patient. And one of the first conferences I went to where they actually showed data, you know, they had they would pull a baby up and the, the head would come too. And they, they held a baby like this and he did the swimming motion. And so even just within a couple months of this one, it's a single injection, um, it was obviously making a huge difference. Next, please. Uh, next, please. So there's a whole bunch of other um, clinical trials going on in SMA, but honestly, like these two are the most exciting. Um, and so, you know, a lot of these are really clever attempts, but um, haven't necessarily shown the same efficacy in preclinical trials. Next. Um, and soon you'll be hearing about the first human head transplant. Um, that's going to be attempted in December of this year. And um, Valerie Spiradnov, um, they call it Werdnig-Hoffman syndrome, but as we know, that's actually SMA. I'm not actually sure why they're calling it Werdnig-Hoffman as opposed to SMA unless it's just to um, uh, kind of show that, again, this guy, according to natural history, should have been dead at age two. Every once in a while, there's someone who just lives a long time. Um, and so his brain is perfectly alert, and he's a perfectly normal guy. It's just that his body is failing him. And so he's teamed up with a doctor in Russia who says, I think I can, I think I can take your head and put it on a donor body and give you a second chance at life, basically. So we'll see. If it goes well, that's great. If it goes poorly, then there will be a lot of um, kind of bioethical issues to deal with. So 
That should be coming this December. Next, please. And so, um, to talk just a little bit about my research, um, since we know the, the cause of SMA now, and actually this is pretty interesting, we didn't even know what gene was responsible for SMA until 1996. So within 20 years, we've gone from gene discovery to approved treatment, which is crazy. Um, you know, there's a lot of diseases that they've been working on it a lot longer um, and still don't have anything to show for it um, because SMA is just simple enough that you can kind of isolate what needs to be done, but complicated enough with that SMN2 that you have a couple different routes that you can try. Um, and so, so, you know, we have some treatments now, but we still don't actually know what SMN is doing in the body. And so my research kind of revolved around that a little bit. Next slide, please. And so, um, next please. Um, my, it actually kind of started as a pet project that my boss had. Um, and so we knew that if we have a mouse model and we give it the gene for human SMN, it does great. It lives 250 days. It works really well. Um, and so he had some postdoc previously who said, I wonder what would happen if you put different animals, the, the gene from different animals in. And so I started doing that, and it turned out to be way more interesting than anyone thought. And um, so I kept going with it. And so the idea was that we assume that some of the species that are really closely related to humans probably will work. Um, but back in evolutionary time, you know, all of these different species may not have used SMN for the same functions. And so um, certain regions of the protein are less well conserved than others. And so um, let's see if we can find what works versus what doesn't and then compare. And so... Um, so this was kind of, we were hoping to find out about the disease-relevant functions of SMN. So we know what function that it can do, um, but it's been really hard to tease apart which of these are just general functions and which of these are causing SMA. Um, and so that was kind of what we were hoping to find out. And so I tested all these, so I made viruses that had the DNA for SMN from humans, from mouse, zebrafish, um, frogs, nematode worms, fruit flies, and yeast. And then I put those into the sick mice and see what worked and what didn't. Next, please. <clears throat> Next. And what I found was that he, uh, humans, mouse, uh, zebrafish, and um, those frogs all worked, and then nothing else worked. So I had identified my conservation threshold and so the next step was to compare, well, what's the difference between what works and what doesn't? Next, please. And so you can't see any of this up here, but this is the protein sequence. Um, so the top line is the protein sequence for human SMN. And then the next line, you probably can't even tell that there are lines up there. Um, but um, this black line is the difference between everything above that is what worked, everything below that is what didn't work, and so um, the thing that stuck out most was that this region here at the end of exon 4 and in exon 5, nothing that didn't work has that region. And so I thought, well, maybe that's the key difference between what works and what doesn't. And so uh, next, please. 
And so this is just kind of a cartoon map of the protein. And so I could see that the end of exon 4 and exon 5 is called the profilin interacting domain, which is actually associated with one of the known functions of SMN. And so we thought, well, maybe that's the key difference. Maybe these species like yeast and fruit flies and worms don't actually need that function, but something about having these big, long, stretching axons within our neurons makes us need um, that function that Esmond uses its profilin interacting domain for. Um, and so I did a whole bunch more experiments to try to figure this out, and I got a bunch of clues, but really no solid conclusions. So that was a pretty big bummer, and then I had to leave eventually. Um, and so it was a pretty, uh, pretty exciting finding, but I don't actually have any solid answers for you yet. Uh, next, please. And so now, as I'm not doing research anymore, um, I've kind of shifted what I'm interested in. And this is thanks to um, Goodentree. So like Goodentree.com is a blog by this family. They were expecting it to be a normal family blog. And then they found out their daughter has SMA, so it became an SMA blog. And that's Nora in the middle. She's type 1, and she's one of those people that's been living a really long time. She's currently seven and a half, I believe. Um, which is really remarkable. You know, they started, they would have happy second birthday, happy second and a half birthday, happy third birthday, because every birthday is that important. Um, and so this is information that I actually found on their site. Next, please. <clears throat> um, that there is SMA carrier testing. And so, like I said, one in 40 people is a carrier. And so, um, even though I have no his family history of SMA, what if that one in 40 is me? Um, and there is a test that you spit in a tube and you send it off. And um, it's through a company called Council. Um, and so what, what would happen is that I spit in a tube. They tell me that I am or am not a carrier for this panel of, G, of you know, whatever, um, of diseases. And if I'm not a carrier for anything, great. You know, go have babies. You know, they, there's nothing that you can't um, foresee coming. And so, um, but if they were to tell me, oh, you're a carrier for SMA, then, for example, my husband would get tested. And if he's also a carrier for SMA, then we have some decisions to make. So if we had been going into that blindly, then we would have a one in four chance that our kid would have SMA. Um, but if you know that information, you have a wealth of options. You can adopt. You can take your risk. Um, you can, you know, if, if you're okay with abortion, you can take the risk and do a prenatal screening and then, you know, make that decision later. Um, if you don't want to go that route, you can do in vitro fertilization and then choose embryos to implant that don't have SMA um, and so that you know that you're protecting your child um, and not putting them at unnecessary risk. Um, and so next slide, please. Uh, next. Oh, you'll have to click a bunch. This is that same slide again. Um, and this is, so this is council, and that's the site that I'm familiar with where you can get this done. Next slide, please. And they're not just screening for SMA, they're screening for about 100 other diseases. And so some of them, like SMA, are lethal, and there's just recently a treatment um, so you really need to think about that carefully. Some of them, like MTHFR deficiency, 
mostly just means that you need to take extra folate when you're pregnant. Um, so that's not a big deal. Um, there's some like um, non-syndromic um, deafness. So your child might be deaf, but have no other disorders associated with the disease. So maybe just learn sign language. Um, so there's a lot of things that you can know and they can help you be prepared, but they don't, it's not necessarily scary information to know. Um, and so to me, it's, it's better to know. It's kind of like a life insurance policy. You'd rather have the information and hope you don't need it um, than to just be rolling those genetic dice and hoping that it all goes well. And so that's kind of what I've been, I don't know, more into these days is kind of letting people my age and my friends know that like, hey, if you're thinking about having kids, you might consider this. Um, and again, it's not scary. It doesn't mean, you know, if, if you come out as a carrier, it doesn't mean you just don't get to have kids. Um, there's definitely options. And so it's just a, a ways of protecting yourselves and your kids. And I believe that's all I've got. So if you have any questions. Where should we start? <laughs> Excuse me. We, um, I had amnio with my kids, and that, so that was you know over 25 years ago. And at that time, they, um, they weren't able to make any corrections in utero. Do you, um, if there was something serious? Mm -hmm. Do you know if that is an area that has grown, or is it just too difficult to treat um, a baby in utero? So I would say that they would be working on it still. I haven't actually heard of any viable treatments in utero. Um, specifically for SMA, there's not. And um, it's pretty, it would be pretty, you wouldn't know that your baby has SMA in utero um, because it, the tests don't work that way. Um, and so, <clears throat> so eventually when they get, um, Treatments actually figured out, and um, when testing is more widespread, I would say that would definitely be something they would be um, considering. And there, so with gene, so with the virus-based gene therapy, you're injecting a virus, and the mom might have antibodies against that virus already. That's really common. Um, so there would be some complications with that, but. I would say it would definitely be something they would be trying to do um, because with um, neurodegenerative diseases, we know that the sooner you catch it before all these motor neurons are dying, it's much, much, much better. But yeah, I don't, I don't know that they have had any success with that yet. Yeah, I haven't, I haven't read about a lot of um, changes in that area. Mm -hmm. so. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I, I forget the name of the company that where you could get the testing that it was like two slides ago. Council. Council. C O U N S Y L. S Y L. Like a genetic counselor, like they're kind of going okay. based off of that. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh huh. We have a question. And I forgot to mention to you guys earlier that probably a lot of you are familiar with ALS, right? Lou Gehrig's disease. This is a lot like that, but it's much. It's more common, but it's less well known because most of these patients die by the age two. They don't 
live long enough to be famous like Lou Gehrig. Um, and so that's why it's less known. Do you have any indication about what the, um, the age of death is after these kids start, start getting treatment? No. Um, so with Spinraza, there were patients that died. So there was a 46 or 49% reduction in death. Um, and I think their, their end point was probably like two years or two and a half years or something. So far in the, um, in the, gene, the viral-based gene therapy, um, nobody's died. They're, everyone is at age two, um, both doses. And again, you would expect 95% of them to be dead at this point. Um, so we don't know. Um, and there's actually, it'll be interesting to see because just because you get them to a later, you know, they, they live longer, are they going to have complications later that we can't yet see? And so, yeah, it's so new that we have no idea. And then when you do genetic counseling and they get to the age where they can procreate, um, would you suggest that they not do so? Um, so, if you ha so say you have a patient who w would have been an SMA patient and they now live long enough to procreate, um, I would say if their partner was not a carrier, they'll be fine. They'll have, all of their children will be carriers because they will be inheriting, you know, one mm -hmm. copy of SMN1 that doesn't do anything from, we'll say it's a woman. So from mom, they're getting null, um, but from dad, they have SMN1, so they will be fine. Um, I don't know whether um, pregnancy would be a particularly difficult um, situation for a patient. Yeah, one of the things, I worked on GenBank for mm -hmm. a long time, um, and one of the things that came up there was the Jewish population in New York, mm -hmm. where they were doing uh, testing for their six problematic um, gene sequences. Mm -hmm. And um, they were trying to wipe out the, these diseases entirely mm. um, by um, in vitro, mm -hmm. And um, they were making really good progress at the time. But I don't know what, what happened since then. Do you have any idea? I don't actually know. Uh -uh. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And um, those Ashkenazi Jews aren't um, a population that's particularly susceptible to SMA. There's other groups, but just not them. Oh, this is just for general information. Um, my brother died of a genetic disease, inherited mm -hmm. genetic disease. It's rather different from yours because mm -hmm. for two reasons. One is it's on the X chromosome, mm -hmm. so you get X-linked inheritance. And the other was that the, the uh, protein involved that's not made has to do with long-term preservation of cells rather than their function. And so the first symptoms don't occur until you're past 40 years of age. Mm -hmm. Is and this Kennedy disease? Pardon? Is this called Kennedy disease? Uh, no, it's got his name attached to it because, oh, gotcha. because he was the, due to two accidents, one of time and one of place, uh -huh. he happened to be the first person recognized as wow. having an ab abnormality before the symptoms hit it, so they could track it. Wow. Um, but uh, it's, it's different from your disease, but it, it's, uh, 
excellent inheritance you can only inter uh, get from your mother and it's a 50-50 proposition. Mm -hmm. uh, I would have been dead 20 years by now if I'd inherited it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and even these ultra-rare diseases like that, um, you know, we think of them as rare, but when you aggregate all the different rare diseases, it's actually one in 10 people. Yeah. And so, and most of them are kids. And so in February, we celebrate like rare disease day and just acknowledging the fact that this is a huge problem yeah. and there's a lot of people really suffering because of it. My, the disease that my family had is, is extremely rare. There are uh, only about 100 cases known to medical science globally mm -hmm. at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that's really tricky. Yeah. You touched, you touched on the point about people living a long time, surprisingly long time. Has any research been done on trying to understand what it is that allows them to continue, or is it just kind of like too complicated? I've never seen anything, and it'll happen in our mouse models too. Um, so it, would, it should be something that someone should be able to kind of probe into. Um, a lot of people talk about genetic modifiers, which would be a gene that is not SMN, that might be interact, like acting in similar pathways, or doing similar functions um, that, you know, perhaps this person happened to have um, more of that gene. Um, and so there's a couple of those. So um, Plastin-3 is a suspected genetic modifier kind of for that reason. They, they don't do the same thing, but they're important in similar pathways. I have a question. Hmm? Given that SMN2 is so pervasive, looks like the entire animal kingdom on mm -hmm. your chart. Uh, SMN1 is pervasive. SMN2 is not. SMN2 only happened in humans. Okay, still have the question. Okay. Is there something else about it that's evolutionarily favorable that would make it 1 in 40? I'm not sure I understand your question. Um, like sickle cell is also good for oh, something yeah, yeah. else, but um, is it good and a bad? No, so the reason that it's so, that it hasn't died out as a disease, right, because it's natural selection is selecting against SMA, I think is what you're saying. So like, unless there was something good about this situation, then it would, evolution would have taken care of it. The reason is because SMN and SMN2, actually the reason that there was this duplication and inversion event is that this region within the, the genome has a, a bunch of repetitive elements. And so the machinery kind of gets gunked up sometimes and it gets confused where it is. And so, I mean, it, it happens every, I don't remember what the rate is, but like, I have perfectly normal SMN1 on both copies, but then when I go to have a kid, that kid has a deletion. It's just because when, um, when my egg was being made, um, because it's such a dynamic region, the, de the um, machinery got gunked up and it deleted that on accident. And so it's not, it's, it's a situation that keeps putting itself in there. Um, so even if you select out for it, it'll come back. Um, 
It's just due to the kind of the, the mutation rate. You have a general mutation rate, but the mutation rate of having deletions in this region is much, much higher than most of the genome. Um, currently, I'm doing writing. Um, I'm, I, one day at work, I write for the Center for Integrated Nanotechnology um, because I like kind of doing this, like taking technical information and talking about it in more general terms. Um, and then I'm also working with AmeriCorps, um, establishing a bio art event space in Santa Fe called Biocultura. And so it's a, a pretty cool, pretty weird um, space. We've got an event coming up um, in a couple weeks where, like, you go, there's this woman has, she studies sleeping, and you go and you drink some tea that's supposed to help lucid dreams, and then you take a nap, and she plays some sounds, and you write it down. I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a new, um, a new adventure for me. My boss is a bio, she's an artist primarily, and so she was excited to have a scientist on board to like try to get more scientists involved. And so, um, yeah, we also have an event coming up. Oh, involving, this woman has been doing um, a lot of kind of citizen science involving plants, and so she'll be presenting her stuff and we'll have a scientist maybe from LANL or, um, maybe from UNM, to talk about some more hard science um, involved with that. So, kind of fun. <laughs> right, let's thank Madeline one more time. Thanks.